Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. There are still plenty of reasons to think that Boris Johnson might not be Prime Minister in five weeks' time, but it is possible that he will be, and we are going to talk about what he stands for. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. I have Helen Thompson and Chris Brook here, and it's Wednesday morning. So today, the thing that we don't know about is Boris Johnson's launch, which is happening later this morning. And because it's Boris Johnson, it must be possible he'll say something surprising that will become the news story. Uh, But he's said a few things already. He's been, relative to the other candidates for the Conservative Party leadership, quite quiet. But he gave an interview in the Sunday Times. And some of the stuff he's going to say today has been pre-leaked. So we've got more of a sense of what his platform is, if that's the word. So I'm just going to pull out a few things that seem to be the the building blocks of the Boris for PM manifesto. So one thing that he has said and will say again today uh, is that he was a successful mayor of London. We can debate that. And people who think that this man is a kind of buffoon, he doesn't know how to run anything, need to remember that he showed as mayor of London that he could put together, in his words, a talented team, because he's aware there are some things that he's not very good at, and he can manage them, and that he actually not only is a vote winner, but he's a reasonably competent executive. So there's a question about whether that's true, but also, is there any comparison between being Mayor of London and being Prime Minister, given that one is a job that famously doesn't have that many powers, and you have to kind of dress up the powers that you have to make it feel like you have more. And the other one is a job that has a quite ridiculous amount of power and anyone who occupies it says within days you get overwhelmed by it. They don't seem the same to me at all. They're obviously very different jobs and being Prime Minister traditionally is quite a stressful job. You can see that in the way that virtually all the longer serving Prime Ministers of the 20th century ended up drinking far more than was healthy for them. But I think there are various ways of being Prime Minister and I think you can certainly imagine a less hands-on managerial style than the kind of presidentialism that we associate with figures like Margaret Thatcher or Tony Blair. And in a way, they've all been that style since Thatcher, haven't they? Well, John Major, I think, was different. I think there was a different atmosphere in John Major's cabinet. Um, I remember many years ago, somebody said that the difference between the Major cabinet and the Thatcher cabinet is that Major, from time to time, would say, but what if we do nothing? And that was completely contrary to the ethos of what was going on in the 1980s. So I think there are different ways of being Prime Minister, and it may very well be that Boris Johnson will be the front man for a more collegial cabinet. But then you run into the problems of Brexit and the politics of Brexit, which are going to overshadow absolutely everything that a Johnson government could be doing. Because in a way, that's one of the questions here, which is that sort of team of talented people in the cabinet, that idea that you draw the talent from wherever you can find it, runs right up against the present moment in British politics, which is the other part of the Johnson pitch, is he is very much on one side of the central issue of the day. And he will need people who support him on that. And that is not a team of all the talents. That's a team of 
like-minded Brexiteers. Except that there's always been this question mark or this ambivalence about Johnson that goes right back to the day that he writes two columns for the Daily Telegraph, one saying he's going to support remaining in the European Union, the other saying he's going to leave, and then sends in the one that says that uh, he supports leave. Most recently, although one of the reasons he's doing so well in the in the betting for the Conservative leadership is he seems to have got a big chunk of the European research group, so Jacob Rees-Mogg's army, on his side. He's not simply going for the votes of ostentatious leavers in the way that I think some of his rivals are. So he's still holding to the idea that there can be a leadership that has support from both the more Levy and the more Romani side of the Conservative Party. He talks tough about how it's essential to leave on the 31st of October, but we're in a world where you know the one thing we know about Boris Johnson is that you can discount the value of his words almost to zero. He's not going to say anything now that will bind him in any real sense to that deadline. He'll muddle through as it approaches... And um, as it gets nearer, try to secure as much flexibility for for his position. I mean, there's obviously a lot of differences between being prime minister and um, being mayor of London. But if you look at the style that he took to being mayor of London, which was to be, you know, the showman and have some, use Tony Blair's phrase, eye-catching initiatives, you know, like Boris bikes or the cable car or the garden bridge that turned out to be a complete waste of money. It's possible to see how you could be a in his own terms, a relatively successful mayor of, of London like that. But you don't have to deal with a party in any meaningful sense, a party management problem being a mayor of London. The, the London Assembly just doesn't pose the same kind of problems that Parliament poses. And I think that the crucial thing about the style of prime ministers that we've had, if we go from Blair onwards, is that we have ones that have sort of put their personality at the front Cameron's, I think, falls into that mould. But they've had, at their more successful moments in their premiership, someone in their chancellor who was a details person, whether that be Gordon Brown. Now, obviously, that relationship between Blair and Brown broke down spectacularly. But the first New Labour term, it worked effectively. Cameron had Osborne. Then you look at the two who tried to do things differently, Gordon Brown and Theresa May, lots of detail themselves, both of them unable to compensate for their own weaknesses and by having somebody who was much better at communication than they turned out to be. Now it's quite difficult I think to see Boris Johnson being the kind of personality he is which is really quite singular in a number of ways understanding that he needs to compensate for his weakness and having somebody and then the question is even if he was willing to have somebody who on earth is this somebody who is going to give him the kind of mastery of detail that he would need to be anything like a successful Prime Minister. And that just wasn't a necessity in the role of Mayor of London. It is a necessity for someone with his personality trying to be Prime Minister. So he must realise that he would need a Chancellor to do quite a lot of the heavy lifting of government. But you think he doesn't appreciate the extent to which he would actually have to have a quite tight working relationship with that person and, as it were, rest on the the detail that was coming from there. Because he must, he's not going to be the kind of Prime Minister who thinks he can just kind of get away with it and the Treasury will take care of itself. He must recognise that that relationship is going to be key to his prospects. You would think that he would, but as I say... But you don't. (laughs) I'm not sure that self-awareness about these kind of issues is something that he's really seriously demonstrated in the past. And I think it does beg the question of who that 
person will be. I mean, he's a kind of politician who's had acolytes over the years of people who are not of the same rank as him, but he has not really been close to people who are his peers and who could act as some kind of counterweight to him in the way in which I think this true of early Brown Blair that was true of Cameron Osborne. I mean, he had a sort of a working relationship of kinds with Gove during the referendum campaign, but then it blew up, so it's difficult to see how Gove is going to be that. So that, that was going to be my question. You don't think Gove might be that details and also strategically oriented politician in the Treasury and Johnson? I mean, this may be a very the problem is, is short that, prime ministership anyway. Yeah, the problem is, is that Gove has pretty clearly demonstrated that he doesn't trust Johnson's character, and it's quite difficult to see now. Obviously, Blair and Brown came not to trust each other's character, but that wasn't the beginning of the story when Blair became Prime Minister. <laughs> this relationship on this issue has already, to all intents and purposes, broken down, or it looks like it has from the outside anyway. The other thing that he uses his time as Mayor of London to build into his prospectus to be Prime Minister in the age of a Corbyn-led opposition is, in his words, he has already seen off one London Marxist cabal, the Ken Livingston cabal, as he put it, and so he knows how to tackle this kind of politics and this kind of politician. Again, there are huge differences. So the, the Ken Livingstone cabal, when he saw it off, didn't feel especially Marxist. It felt more like another politician looking for some eye-catching initiatives as mayor of London. And Livingstone's time as mayor of London didn't feel like it turned London into some kind of Marxist enclave. But Johnson, he is saying, among other things, that he is, broadly speaking, a London politician in an age where the opposition is focused on a kind of London politics and he knows how to do that again I don't buy it I think the differences are much bigger than the similarities but it's part of the pitch it it seems to me eccentric to think of him as a London politician before he was mayor of London his only public office was member for Henley in Oxfordshire there was a sense when he was selected as the mayoral candidate that he was an outsider so it's not as if he goes back decades in London politics fighting John McDonnell and Ken Livingstone in GLC committees or anything like that. His first role in London politics was to be the front man for the Conservatives' attempt to wrest the mayoralty away from Ken Livingstone. Then, as you say, by the end of Ken Livingstone's second term, there wasn't much left of the politics of the old GLC in in his mayoralty. So I'd be pretty sceptical about that. The very striking contrast between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn is... They're diametrically opposed to one another on questions of what we might call imperial nostalgia, that Boris Johnson wallows in it. And if there's one thing that keeps Jeremy Corbyn going in politics, it's hostility to British imperialism. It's um, a whole series of foreign policy questions where his and Johnson's instincts pull in completely different directions. So it may very well be the case that if Johnson is Prime Minister and Corbyn is leader of the opposition, we get more public sparring over foreign policy questions than we've had in the past. But then again, Johnson's position again is a deeply unserious one. That's to say, he does have nostalgia for empire, but it takes the form of muttering Kipling poems on when visiting Buddhist temples and things like that, rather than being a coherent, worked out view of foreign policy or Britain's role in the world. Because it is one of the other things that the Mayor of London can do, the current Mayor of London is doing actually, which is a sort of another way to grab attention is to have foreign policy positions, and Ken Livingston had them as well. I mean, there was the, the Venezuela connection. I mean, if there is a link between the, the Corbyn is, and Livingston... I, I think the Marxist thing is a complete red herring in that, but I think that 
in the first mayoral election in London that Boris Johnson did get quite a lot of mileage about attacking Livingston, I think he called in the mayor of Caracas, or it wasn't Johnson, it was someone in, in Johnson's campaign, but that argument that essentially Livingston was using the mayoralty for taking some foreign policy stance. The Venezuela issue was quite important in, in that framing of Livingston, but it wasn't, it wasn't the only one, and that he wasn't really interested in being mayor of London any longer, that it was a stage for this grander foreign policy stance. I think that that was part of the reason why Johnson was able to attack Livingston as effectively as he did in the first election. I don't think it really played any significant part in the second one where Johnson got to defend his record and uh, Livingston was a, a lot less effective a candidate than he'd previously been anyway. There are still two ways you could read that though. So it might be that what was really effective there was undercutting Ken Livingston's pretensions as Mayor of London to be this sort of international figure or power broker. The other is that it was effective on the substance of it, which is to connect him with that particular regime, which in 2008 the Venezuelan regime was not in as much trouble as it is today. And of course, Tory politicians have, with Corbyn, tried to make that connection, to pin him to his Venezuelan past. Could Johnson be more effective at that? I mean, he's almost certainly going to do it in a more full-throated way. It is unquestionably, I think, if we, if we were we to get to a general election between Johnson and Corbyn, Venezuela would be part of the Tory rhetoric. I'm sure of it. I think it would be. I'm not sure how effective it is. I, I just think that the, the specifics of the story are just not well enough known amongst enough voters here, really, for Venezuela to resonate. I think the reason why it worked back in 2008 was because it was a more simple charge that Livingston wasn't really interested in London. That is what he was able to do. And he tied it to an account of like Livingston being borderline corrupt. I'm not suggesting that he was. I'm just suggesting that that was the narrative that was was put around on it and playing demographic politics in London in a very cynical way. Again, that was a charge that was put by Johnson. And that Johnson was presenting himself as somebody who was interested in being mayor of London and not using it as a stage, though you could then argue that he used it in a stage in a different kind of way, and that he was interested in unifying the city and representing the whole city and not this slice and dice it kind of approach that Livingston was portrayed anyway as engaging in. There has been an attempt to make that charge against Corbyn that actually, though he ran a very successful general election campaign almost exclusively on domestic policy, he's not actually interested in domestic policy. He is, above all, not just a foreign policy politician, but someone with a kind of view of the international order and where it's profoundly unfair and corrupt. And that's his central mission in politics. And of course, the thing that you can't say about someone running to be prime minister is that this person has pretensions because they think they're going to play a role on the world stage because they will play a role on the world stage in a Corbyn prime ministership. There, there is traction, potentially more traction for this, because at least you can say, if this person becomes prime minister, they could act on this. I think Helen is right that it doesn't cut through in the way that in other circumstances it might. And I think the big reason for that is that when Corbyn was an unknown backbench MP, he was all about Palestine and he was all about Venezuelan solidarity and Cuban solidarity and so on and so on. And since he's become a national political figure, it's been the politics of anti-austerity, it's been the critique of new labour, it's been the manifesto in 2017 that overwhelmingly focused on domestic concerns. Week after week at Prime Minister's Questions, when all the the liberal journalists and the second referendum types want him to be challenging the government on Brexit, and he stands up and asks questions about bus timetables or waiting lists, that the general public don't see him as a chiefly a foreign policy politician. 
it's very difficult to see what a successful attack by the Conservative Party could look like. Of course it will infuse their rhetoric and it will play a role in not so much bringing over swing voters, but in rallying the base and making Tories feel that the crusade against Jeremy Corbyn is a noble one that has to be fought, etc., etc. But I can't see it being an important issue at a general election. So the other thing that Johnson has in his backstory is a lot of journalism. He, he was, has been, still is, a prolific journalist. Michael Gove is in trouble at the moment because his journalistic backstory seems to have included when a journalist, and it's always framed like this, taking cocaine as though it was a sort of occupational hazard of the profession. Um, I think the bigger danger, in a way, of having been a journalist these days is that there is, in Johnson's case, decades of stuff to trawl through looking for the incendiary remark and the kind of journalist that Johnson has been. He's been a provocateur. That's how he got going as the Brussels correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, writing stories that were probably not entirely accurate, but certainly effective. There's been a bit of trawling. I imagine there's actually been a lot of trawling. People must have been going through it, looking for the stuff, and, and particularly finding these not serious imperial nostalgic reflections, but kind of jokey ones, sort of spectator diaries where he goes to Africa. And, and it just, you know, there's a picture that you can paint there of someone who uses that issue. So there was one on female genital mutilation where it was just he wasn't taking it seriously. He was treating it as a joke, the, the famous recent one about women wearing burqas, using it as a joke. Again, a part of Johnson's pitch relative to Gove and others is that it's all out there. There aren't skeletons in the closet that are going to rattle out because he's been totally sort of put through the ringer already. Are we sure about that? Is Do we think that there isn't in the record of a man like that likely to be still quite a lot of stuff that, again, Labour might be sitting on that they can wheel out, which just makes him seem both deeply insensitive, unserious, and actually, to many people, profoundly offensive as a public figure. Can you be Prime Minister if you've got 20 years of that kind of journalism behind you? Well, I think we've seen a dry run for that in his time as Foreign Secretary, that the overseas press was extremely hostile towards Boris Johnson and contemptuous of him. The foreign correspondents knew exactly what he'd said about their various countries and what he'd said about international politics. And did it matter much? Well, it it mattered for career diplomats in the Foreign Office who found it's harder to conduct British foreign policy when the world thinks your foreign secretary is a bad joke. But outside of that world, you know, it's very bad if you're the British woman who is in prison in Iran that is a stick that is regularly used to beat Boris Johnson. But from Johnson's point of view, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Britain runs an ineffective foreign policy. It doesn't matter if there are British nationals in Iranian jails. What matters is, can he become leader of the Conservative Party and hold together enough votes to plausibly remain Prime Minister after a general election? And that, I think, is where the the campaign in London does give us a clue to how he operates. That's to say, he hoovered up votes in outer London, while Labour was hoovering up votes in inner London. And... He's not terribly bothered about whether he offends foreigners or members of vulnerable minorities along the way, because voters in those groups aren't especially likely to vote for him anyway. And he's not after their votes. He's after votes of people who, whether or not they take him terribly seriously, like the show that he puts on. I think in normal political circumstances, if there are if there is such a thing as normal political circumstances, you can't see Boris Johnson being leader of the Conservative Party because 
his history and the baggage that he brings, even, I would say, on the issues of his marriages and infidelities and that side of things alone would disqualify him. It is quite striking that Michael Gove is clearly being held to a different standard about the cocaine issue than than Johnson has, who's admitted cocaine use in the past. So there is something where he is sort of, if you like, set himself outside conventional political morality, for want of a a better term. The only reason why he has got any prospect of being Prime Minister is because he looks like the only person who, even in principle, let alone whether that could be turned out to be in practice, has got any chance of re-establishing the Conservatives' electoral position. The only person who looks like he could take votes back from the Brexit party and the Conservatives are in existential crisis and they have a choice between the one person who has got some electoral credibility pretty much dependent on winning those two mayoral elections and I think one should factor into that the weakness of Livingston as a candidate before drawing too many conclusions from it with the fact that he has almost certainly got more skeletons there than have hitherto um, come out or at least one wouldn't be surprised if there were more that time came out but the Conservative Party cannot conceive I think any other way of getting out of the position electorally and then that's a different position than actually getting Brexit through Parliament without having somebody who has got the potential appeal of Boris Johnson now it loses them seats I'm pretty sure in, in Scotland which was after all if they hadn't won those seats in Scotland they wouldn't have been the biggest party after the last election so it's not even in its electoral sense without risks but that is the position in which that they're in, so that they are contemplating, I think, something that the Conservative Party wouldn't in normal circumstances contemplate. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I want to come on to the Trump comparison in a second, because as you both were saying that, it does immediately start to loom large, um, because people were saying some of these things about Trump. But... It is also true, I still feel that, yes, when he became foreign secretary, the foreign press trawled through his past and were indeed outraged by some of the things that he'd said. And and even in this country, there was a certain amount of disquiet. There is just a step change in the level of scrutiny you get as prime minister, and then to be leader in a general election, and to be the front person in a general election, which again, is still different from being fighting a mayoral London election, just the level of scrutiny and the possibility that whatever else Johnson might think he wants to do, he will be on the defensive because of his record for quite a lot of the time, if he becomes prime minister, that he is prime minister. And that is different in a way. I mean, there's the foreign press, but if the British press or the British coverage of politics starts to really focus on, and it does also depend on how he responds when people say, do you still believe X? Do you still believe Y? Do you still believe Z? He can't shirk it. As foreign secretary, you can kind of leave the country. 
which he did a couple of times to avoid difficult situations. But which parts of the press is it going to come from? I mean, I remember in these podcast conversations around about the time of the 2017 election, we were struck by the way in which a lot of the stories seemed to be broken by the old media, by the newspapers, and that some of the hype around social media and new, new news outlets, you know, maybe was a bit overhyped. And it's what we used to call Fleet Street that's the most important player in the British media here. But the bulk of the press is very right-wing, very Brexity, and will be very pro-Boris if they come to agree with the judgment of the Conservative Party that he's the only thing that can keep the show on the road. So it's difficult to see the Times or the Telegraph or the Mail deciding that doing a number on Boris Johnson is going to be a priority for their investigative operations. It would be hilarious if it happened, but... I think the priorities of the British press will be elsewhere and the Guardian can't cut through in the same way. People don't pay attention to what the Guardian says. And I guess it is also true if, if the thing that you're looking for is the the new story or the something found in Johnson's past that actually cuts across the divides in politics. Because the other thing that we learned in 2017 is, for instance, the Theresa May and the ivory trade story did great business among the people who were open to hearing that story on Facebook. It didn't cut across at all. But to find the thing that Johnson might have said that doesn't just outrage the people who are outraged anyway, but actually causes people who might otherwise support him to have reason maybe to stay at home, that story is still quite hard to imagine what it would be. There is an interesting disjuncture where Johnson and the media is concerned. You know, in some sense, he is a man of the newspaper world. And he has, completely unlike Theresa May, various columnists who very much are cheerleaders. I mean, Cameron did as well, and Blair did prior to that. May didn't have anybody who could have fallen into that um, category. I think the more interesting thing in a way, though, is Johnson and television, where it's not clear he's particularly good at it, despite the fact that the other way in which he initially made his reputation was on a television show on Have I Got News For You. He's, He's not good at television interviews. He wasn't particularly effective, I would say, compared to some of the other Leave campaigners in the debates during the referendum yeah. campaign. Andrea Ledson was thought to have been the best yeah. debater, wasn't she, in the Leave campaign? Oh, Giselle Stewart did better than me. Certainly the one I remember watching where there was a number of them in, and he actually let the others sort of bigger, bigger role in it, really, than, than he did. It's not his forte, and he's not going to be able to avoid television interviews as Prime Minister in a way which I think it's easier to do as Foreign Secretary and in that respect he's not entirely dissimilar to Theresa May who was you know like not very good on her feet now you think that in some sense Boris is good on his feet but good on his feet for Boris is to say something you know like completely off script that can cause him all kinds of problems I think his his lack of discipline shows on television in a way which could quite readily catch him out as leader of the party. The other thing we do have from Johnson is one relatively clear policy position, which is going to have to serve as a proxy for a kind of political philosophy, which is that he's promised to raise the uh, threshold for the 40% tax rate, which would benefit a small but significant number of voters, um, many of whom fit into what you might call his target demographic. Is, is there enough there to sort of <laughs> intuit a wider philosophy? Chris, do you have any sense that he has a wider philosophy that that would fit into? No. I mean, in search of Boris Johnson's political philosophy, just the other day I went and had a look at his 2013 Margaret Thatcher lecture 
uh, that was given to the Centre for Policy Studies, and it's a general sort of eulogy to Margaret Thatcher and a popular understanding of Thatcherism, emphasising aspects to do with London, because he was mayor at the time, and so talking about the Big Bang and so on. Uh, But then at one point he says, you know, what would Maggie do now? What would Maggie do? And he comes up with the conclusion that Maggie would put a great big airport out on the Thames estuary, that's to say... And name it after Boris. (laughs) Well, no, in the lecture... (laughs) Would he name it after her? In the lecture, he calls it Margaret Thatcher International Airport. So everyone knows he's referring to what was popularly known as Boris Island and was absolutely regarded as one of those eye-catching initiatives that hardly anyone thought was a good idea and was obviously never going to happen. But I think it is quite striking that when he's given a stage and asked to reflect on deeper political principles or political ideas, in the end he comes back to his own signature project as mayor that are designed to draw attention to himself and the difference that he can make as a leader. Yeah, I don't think he has any clear ideological positions. I mean, if you look at the way that he tried to present himself when he was mayor of London, I mean, liberal is the sort of most general term that you can put on. He presented himself as socially liberal, he presented himself as economically liberal. I think that the thing with the tax proposal that um, he's put out there, I see that not really in ideological terms, but as an attempt to try to keep on side conservative Remainers. If you say, is what's the problem that Conservative Party faces at the moment, is that its old electoral coalition, which is already in some difficulty, it must be said before we get to 2016, is fractured. And that the Brexit part of it has become stronger for obvious reasons since the, the referendum. And he's trying to keep the Tory Remain vote on side. And he doesn't seem to think that the fear of Corbyn is sufficient to keep them there and they are being offered essentially a tax cut to stay. There's the assumption there that for the people who it's thought that Corbyn's policies are very appealing to, which is a large proportion of the British electorate, nonetheless the Brexit issue might trump that and Johnson doesn't need to make an offer to them beyond Brexit but the people he does need to make an offer to are Tories for whom his Brexit strategy is not appealing. Well that's the judgment that I've made about what he's thinking and in a way, it's almost, it, it, I don't know whether it's called old-fashioned or American, which is the idea that there's a kind of group that you can appeal to on, for want of a better word, cultural grounds, that you don't need to make an economic offer to. And then there's a more affluent group who might traditionally have voted right, but are having doubts for other reasons that you need to make an economic offer to. And if you can put those two things together, you might get over, I don't know, 38% or something, and then you're just squeaking over the line. If you think of it, the Conservatives' electoral um, problem is is they've got to fold onto a seat like Mansfield and win back a seat like Leamington and Warwick. And I think that you hold on to Mansfield on the Brexit side and you use a tax cut to try and win back Leamington and Warwick. Tax cuts plus culture is also quite Trumpish. It is. So if we do the Trump comparison, which is doing the rounds, has been doing the rounds for quite a while. So one thing that is really striking. Yes, he has cheerleaders in the press, but there is a kind of never Boris movement out there as well within the Conservative Party. I can't remember anything similar to this. So for instance, Matthew Paris is kind of playing a role like maybe George Will or someone in the United States as a very senior conservative journalist who is absolutely kind of eviscerating of Johnson's character and has been saying for months, if not years, over my dead body, 
Rory Stewart, one of the candidates, again, is playing a kind of Mitt Romney-style role. I mean, these comparisons probably don't exactly work, but there's someone who is running for this office too within a party that will have to hold together whoever wins, saying more or less, as he was saying yesterday, do you want this man in charge of Britain's nuclear deterrent? There is that strain now in British politics which wasn't there before within a party, which is that the diehard opponents are much, much more vocal, and it's on character, it's absolutely explicitly on character. It's kind of people who know this man, who've worked with this man, who really know what goes on behind the scenes. They're trying to warn you of something. And of course, of recent political movements, I would say the world's least successful is the Never Trump movement. I think that that's right, that an awful lot of Conservative MPs don't like Boris Johnson at all. They don't trust him. They don't respect him. They don't think of him as as one of them. For a long time, this was the conventional wisdom about why he wouldn't become prime minister, because to win the leadership of the party, you need to come first or second in the balloting of MPs and then go to the runoff before the members. It's always been very clear from the polling that we have that the members, if given a chance, would elect Boris Johnson to the leadership. And the question was, would they get that chance? He spectacularly self-destructed in 2016, so that didn't happen. But a lot of people thinking about the numbers think that in more normal circumstances, Johnson would be eliminated from the parliamentary voting before getting to the runoff. Even in the current setup, it's plausible to see how that would happen. So the Raab campaign now looks like a dead duck. But if Gove manages to hang in in the race and the drugs issue isn't making it easy for him right now, but that's this week's story, and maybe next week or the week after, things will be very different. Gove's hope is that in late rounds of voting, he's going to get the votes of people who want to stop Boris Johnson that can squeeze Johnson into third place so that he's the final candidate that's eliminated, so that, for example, the runoff before the Tory members would be Michael Gove against Jeremy Hunt. Now, the reason that's not looking so plausible is that a Johnson bandwagon does seem to have got going, and Johnson has around 60 or more public endorsements from Conservative MPs, and he only needs to get to 104 or 105 in order to book himself a slot in the runoff before the members. In these very abnormal circumstances, and Helen has sketched some of what those are, the instincts of a lot of MPs will be focused more on saving their own seats on questions of party survival and seeing that although they don't like Boris Johnson, they don't trust him, they don't think he is at all truthful, uh, they don't think he stands for anything beyond his own self-glorification, they will be more tolerant than they would in other situations of him becoming leader of the party and prime minister. Because you could say the big, there are many differences with Trump, but of course the big difference is that Trump never had to win over the party establishment or the other elected politicians on the Republican side. He could just always appeal directly to his popular support, whereas Johnson, to get to the popular support, has got to it's got to pass through the parliamentary party because we have a parliamentary system. It's not presidential. So if Johnson is in any way like Trump, he's got to do that kind of politics in a non-presidential system, which is much harder. I mean, in a way, maybe the Never Johnson movement has got more legs here than Never Trump failed because it just never managed to appeal to the people who had to be persuaded not to trust Trump. Just talk to itself. I think that the, if you like, the Never Johnson thing is not a product of a a political climate in some sense created by never Trump or the emergence in recent years of character. I think it's it's simply always been there. You know, parliamentary parties 
have exercised some kind, or the upper echelons of parliamentary parties, have exercised some kind of veto over the kind of people who can become leader of these parties. And that in times long past and recent past, and if it weren't for the circumstances of the Conservative Party under the conditions of trying to secure Brexit, would still be the case. Is, is Boris Johnson is not somebody who can be Prime Minister. And the difficulty that the Conservative Party, including the people who are saying that and who've been saying that for a long time, I think you can go back to probably 2012-ish, when Max Hastings was pretty much saying the same thing, certainly quite some time before the, the referendum campaign, that the man can never be Prime Minister, is that, as I said before, that reality is up against this absolute political crisis for the Conservative Party and they have to choose. Now you could say that well that was the crisis that the Republican Party faced in 2016 that that was that Trump was its only way back to power but I think that that comparison doesn't really work because the Republicans have been doing pretty well in all elections ever since the 2008 presidential election so the republicans weren't in an existential crisis in 2016 in a way it almost felt the opposite people sometimes said wow the republicans have managed to pick the only candidate who could lose to hillary clinton which turned out not to be true but he very nearly lost to hillary clinton it wasn't like i don't think trump's appeal was we've only got one person who even conceivably could get us back in the game which is it does feel like that as you both have been saying that that if johnson has still this core appeal it's that and yet I think we've got to finish with the crisis itself, which we've been circling But there is around. one more thing just on that, though, is is that the I think that for the point of view of the Conservative Party, they have to have somebody in terms of the legitimacy within the party who is not somebody who was in Theresa May's cabinet all the way to the end. And that, that effectively means one of Johnson or Raab. And that the never Johnson arguments run into the never Raab arguments. You're choosing between two people who are pretty problematic in the same kind of way. I mean, if that genuinely is, you think, the, the deal-breaker, you mustn't have served till the end, then Johnson will be Prime Minister in five weeks' time. I mean, there's no, there's saying, no other... I, well, I, I know, it wasn't quite my point. But my point is, 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 if it is the case that it was, say, Hunt versus Gove, I think that that causes the Conservative Party an internal party problem. That, that in some sense, is that if they're going to maintain the present system of electing a leader that they have, and that they again deprive the members of the ability to choose somebody because last time the members didn't get to choose anybody at all and are presented with two May loyalists as the choice I think that they've got another kind of political problem to deal with. So let's finish with the question of the firm commitment he's made and Chris says that you shouldn't trust his words maybe you shouldn't trust any politician's words in this context because lots of things have been said about dates that turned out that commitments were breakable But Johnson has been absolutely clear that come hell or high water, Britain leaves the European Union on the 31st of October 2019. Some of the other candidates have said something similar. Leadsom has said something similar. Raab has certainly said something similar. But he's probably going to be, if he gets through, going to be up against someone who's saying something a bit different, whether it's Gove or Hunt. So some people have framed this, that it's the choice between the person who conceivably could win an election and the candidates who are absolutely determined to avoid an election at any cost, of whom Hunt is one. Hunt has been completely clear that he's the person who will make sure that there isn't an election as long as he can avoid it, but it can't be avoided forever. Who's running the bigger risk here? As we get, say this comes down to a choice between two, and you've got Hunt saying, the one thing that we cannot have is an election this year, and Johnson saying, the one thing we cannot do is not have left the European Union by the end of October. These are two risky 
positions to hold, which is the riskier one, do you think, politically? Or maybe they're both equally fatal? That's the judgment that the Conservatives will have to make. And yeah, the Conservative Party is in a terrible position at the moment. And it's not clear how it can be got out of its crisis. Because even as everyone's queuing up to say that it's essential for Britain to leave the European Union by October the 31st, which is a not especially coded way of saying they're willing to countenance if they can engineer it, a no-deal Brexit, that would also have catastrophic effects on the Conservative Party's ability to compete in key geographical parts of the country in the general election. So the position the Conservative Party is in is that at the moment is there are really no good outcomes. There's no plausible way forward that doesn't have a very high risk of a very severe disaster engulfing the party. If you were risk-averse, you'd pursue the Jeremy Hunt strategy because it's one of delaying the moment of reckoning and hoping that something will come up, a kind of McCorberism. And Johnson is able to strike a bolder pose. Of course, it may very well be that a general election happens, not one that Johnson wants, because he fails to secure a majority in the House of Commons on a confidence issue early in his prime ministership. And then we'll see what happens. So I think it's not obvious to me which the strategy is that is least likely to lead to disaster. But I think the most obvious issue is that Hunt is promising to delay the moment of reckoning. Is it at least possible, this is probably a bit melodramatic, that the fact that the Tory party is contemplating making Boris Johnson prime minister is such an unusual thing that it is actually a symptom of a party that's dying? That in hindsight, this will look like not a solution, but evidence of the fact that the party has got itself into a terminal bind. I think it's a really um, it's a deeper issue than the Conservative Party, though. I think that as we were talking about last week, that the constitution's been bent out of shape. Both of the main parties are in deep trouble. Yeah, Corbyn's not had a good few days, um, and that, in a significant sense, what now happens with with Brexit is not in the hands of British politicians. You know, they are at the mercy of assuming that we ended up with a government of whoever it's led by that asks for another extension, then at the mercy of what the European Union Council has to say about that. And it could also be the case that if Parliament had by that time essentially taken control or majority in Parliament had taken control and and ended up with a, an alternative government in some sense, you know, by the fallout of Parliament having taken control and tried to revoke, that that might still be at the mercy of the European Council because of the good faith issue. So I think we shouldn't go overboard on thinking about what British politicians can do and what British politicians' judgment are here because where we end up isn't going to just be determined by what they decide to do. And I think that the longer things go on um, as they are in this stasis the more difficult the choices get for everybody and one of the reasons why we're in the position that we are is is because it has been possible to keep for quite a number of different political actors to keep postponing making decisions so at what point do those people who want to stop Brexit have to decide whether they want to do it by holding a second referendum and go about trying to construct a parliamentary majority in order to bring that about 
or whether they're going to do it by revoke. And again, that isn't just something that they can make a judgment about without regard for how the EU might respond to any of these moves. You know, the longer it goes on, everybody's calculations become more and more difficult. And at a certain point, something has to break. Some position that some set of actors have taken has to change. So let me put it slightly differently. Is it then possible that the next five weeks are a giant distraction? So we're going to be preoccupied with the thought that who gets chosen to be the next British Prime Minister is a really, really important thing for the future of this country. It's, people keep saying it's one of the most consequential decisions of our time. Is it actually not the consequential decision? Is this just part of the displacement activity, this parade of Conservative candidates with their positions that, as almost everyone has pointed out, they keep saying they'll do X or Y or Z, they don't have the power to do X, never mind Y, let alone Z. I think so. I think everything is pointing towards the renewal of the crisis in its intense phase in October. Donald Tusk said when the extension was agreed, you know, that you know there's not much time, don't waste it. And then and we're to, wasting it to, choosing a Prime Minister? Well, everyone is wasting it. Theresa May, you know, made moves to propose the withdrawal agreement yet again, knowing that it wouldn't go through. And then the Conservative Party is now having five weeks for its election campaign. And then we've got the long summer recess. And then the politicians come back briefly in September, but not really not long enough to do anything. And then we have the break for the party conferences. And then we're into October, now, if there's going to be a general election before the October deadline, it basically has to be sorted out in those few days in September when Parliament is back in session to get the dissolution and fix a date in October for an election. But that's probably not going to happen, which means everyone is treading water, waiting for the crisis in October. And we we know a bit about what that's like, because that's what we went through in March and April. And as Helen says, there are all kinds of uncertainties about what the European leaders will do next time around, although I think there's still reasonably good reason to think that they will allow for a further extension, not least because um, the Irish really don't want a no-deal Brexit and the other European leaders are taking the wishes of the Irish government very seriously throughout this process. But yeah, I think there's a very important sense in which everyone's biding their time and waiting for waiting for the crisis in October, and we'll see what happens then. The thing is that Tusk saying, you know, like, don't waste the time, is just kind of like misunderstanding what the problem is, because until something changes, that all there is to do is to waste time doing something with a distraction. If you want to say what the bottom line is, is is that the UK government has been trying to get through a withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons when it doesn't by itself have a parliamentary majority, that such parliamentary majority as it can construct with another party is bitterly opposed to a crucial element of the withdrawal agreement and there isn't enough support from the Labour Party to get past that logjam. That is the underlying difficulty and nothing that has happened so far has changed anybody's calculations. So the question is, is when we get to October, is somebody in all this is calculations about that structural problem going to change. And a one-line question, Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister in itself does not change that? No, I don't think it does, no. We're going to get away from British politics if we can, and we'll be talking about America very soon and other things as well. We're about to start recording the guides that we put out over the summer, covering everything from the Chinese Communist Party to marriage. 
We've been delighted to hear in the past that some teachers who listen to this podcast find them useful. If you are a teacher and you do listen to Talking Politics, we would love to hear from you. And we've got a survey that we would like teachers to fill in. We will tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Right. right. Lean we in. Lean in. Her it's hard. It's a rainy, it's hard. cold yeah. <laughs> Wednesday. But. Near the end of the world. Life is a gift. They've all got two arms and two legs. Oh, no. <laughs> they, they've all got two ones as a comment on the examining process. Mm. Yes. <laughs> two ones. Two legs and two ones. That's quite a good. <laughs> Quite a good tagline. Two arms, two legs, and two ones. Okay.